It's wonderful to see you all again on site and online as well. Uh, we are in the middle of a series called Resilient, where we have been looking at the Old Testament character named Joseph, found in the end of the book of Genesis. If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you'll know that what we've seen so far in the story is a bit of a rough time for good old Joe. It has not been a real joyous time for, we wouldn't call him Joyful Joe necessarily, because people and events continually seem to be failing him. We've seen already that he has a long list of reasons to be discouraged, and I, I just give you a little heads up, today's not going to get any better for Joe. He's going to kind of continue into this realm of possibly being discouraged. But the good news for us is it gives us an opportunity to consider the question, when we feel discouraged, what can we do? How can we keep that discouragement that we feel from defining our lives? Because the reality is, is that it's not hard to find things in the world around us and in our lives that will lead us down that hole of discouragement. True? Absolutely. You just have to turn on the news and it seems like they pick headlines specifically designed to get a response from us, typically a negative response from us. If we turn on TV in the evenings lately, we've been able to watch the Oilers, which can be a discouraging event to, uh, to watch as well. And even the youngest of us is not immune to this. I remember when our, our kids were younger and Joshua was probably about three years old and, and we were all getting ready to head out in the winter time. And we're like, come on, Josh, let's get ready, let's go. And he just, he wasn't doing it quick enough. So we came around the corner and there he is. Maybe moms and dads have seen this. He's got his foot and his boot and the two just will not come together. And he's going, come on, boot, as he's trying to pull that boot on himself, even the little guys have discouragement that can seep into their lives. Well, it's in the world all around us. And we know this because there's all sorts of opportunities and even companies that are seeking to offset the presence of discouragement in our lives. You maybe have been in an office or in a classroom where you see some of these uh, posters or mugs or even the t-shirts with like positive affirming statements upon them or, or the motivational sentences. You know, for example, back in the 80s, who remembers the hang in there, kitty? Remember that, the hang in there, kitty poster and, and the you know, don't worry, be happy buttons that, that people wore for a while. It's kind of good that that fad didn't last too long. These things are all around us. Actually, did you know that in, in 2021, this has been a growing business given the realities of COVID, and when people return back to public speaking again, they're expecting that the speaking plus the production of these types of things is going to exceed being a $2 billion industry in, in North America this coming year because people are discouraged, and these little trinkets help to encourage us, apparently. Well, there's another company who's gone a different direction with this. They've had a bit of a different approach at to the times that we live in. And there's this company that's called Despair.Inc. And they specialize in demotivational products. Because their attempt and their reason to exist is to feed the collective angst of the populace. Now, if you go to their website, you'll see they have the standard posters and, and mugs and, and t-shirts with sayings on them. But what their motto, motto is, is that they're offering a cure for hope at affordable prices. Because it was just too expensive, apparently, beforehand. So, you see these standard cups and t-shirts and posters, but if you go to their websites, you might see something like this. You know, we've all, probably all heard the same before, it's always darkest before 
Before the dawn, right. It's always darkest before the dawn. That's a hopeful saying. Well, no. At Despair.inc, they say it's always darkest before everything goes pitch black. Bit of a different angle on that one. How about, uh, we probably also heard a saying along the lines of, I expected times like this, but we might follow it up with saying, but hard times don't last forever, but, you know, but, but strong people do. Something encouraging like that. Not at Despair.inc. They have one that says, I expected times like this, but never thought they'd be so bad, so long, or so frequent. So maybe you want to hang some of those on your walls or on your coffee mug. It's discouraging. But they've tapped into something that we all know and that we've all experienced. Is that at times life can be discouraging. And in the life of Joseph, nobody knows that better than him. He comes from a family that is riddled with dysfunction. His brothers hate him. They threaten to kill him. They back away from that, thankfully, but they decide to throw him in a pit anyways. And while they're trying to figure out what to do with this brother that's in the pit, they come to the conclusion to sell him and ship him off to Egypt, where he finds himself going from the favorite son to the favorite slave in Egypt, in Potiphar's home, where things actually get worse because then he's framed for a crime he didn't commit and gets thrown into another pit, into prison. But in spite of it all, in the face of adversity, in the lure of temptation, and now in the draw of discouragement, he remains resilient. But, but not of his own ability. You see, as we've been talking about, he remains resilient because he has this unwavering faith in God who has been unwavering in his faith to him. As God would say to Joshua generations later, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, I'm not going to tell you Joseph isn't discouraged in all of these events. You know, he's, sometimes we read these, these biblical characters, we think they're like superhuman in some fashion, where they're immune to the feelings of the world. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you he wasn't discouraged. I'm sure he felt the emotion and the pressure of discouragement. It creeps into all of our lives. But I also believe, what I also want to tell you is that I believe that Joseph was able to prevent discouragement from defining his life. He was able to keep it from controlling his life. And so as we look at this story as it continues today, I invite you to turn in Genesis chapter 40, if you would, in your Bibles. And we're going to be learning from his example some keys of encouragement to avoid living a life of discouragement. Some keys of encouragement to avoid living a life of discouragement. And if you're moving there on your Bibles or on your, on your uh, digital devices to Genesis chapter 4, let me just set the context for you going back to the end of chapter 39 a little bit. Where it begins, we find Joseph is in prison. We read about this last week where he had been framed for a crime he did not commit. And he gets thrown into jail. And when it looks like all is lost, like he has been stripped of everything now, we're reminded four times in chapter 39, the Lord was with him. 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 And he blessed him and everything he put his hand in his mind to. And so God continues to give Joseph favor in the midst of all of these difficulties, including when he's in prison. God gives him favor in the eye of the warden who puts Joseph in charge of everything, of all the activities and of all the prisoners that are there with him. Now, i got to tell you, this isn't just your average jail that Joseph is put into. Uh, this particular prison existed in the basement 
of Potiphar's home. What would be considered the basement of Potiphar's home. And it wasn't for the general populace. You see, this was the type of place that you would send political prisoners or you would send sort of official prisoners to. It would be similar to what we imagine the jails in Hollywood would be like. Okay, they're, they're, they're kind of a step above where the general populace goes to. But here's the big difference. Even though it's a special jail for dignitaries, it was still very real. You really did lose your freedoms. You really did get punished. And you really, really could just be forgotten about altogether and left down there, never see justice, never see a trial, never see daylight again, and just be forgotten. So Joe's been in there for a couple years now at this point. Probably about 10 years he's been in this jail at this point. When our story picks up in Genesis chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, a cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master. And the king of Egypt, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer chief cup and the chief baker. And he put them in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard. That's Potiphar. He put them in custody in his house in the same prison Joseph was confined to. The captain of the guard and the warden appointed them under the care of Joseph. Now, you might think that a cupbearer and a baker appear to be kind of menial jobs, but these are actually high-ranking officials. Now, aside from doing the obvious task of preparing the food and the drink for the king, they're also actually in charge of making sure nobody tries to assassinate the king, which is why these are high-ranking officials. And kings can be kind of fussy about things like this, about attempts on their life. And some people may even say they could be paranoid about people trying to kill them. And so anything real or perceived can lead to them being offended by those that are in service to them. You know, for example, if the food tastes off a little bit, like, like if the baker had tried to put the king on a keto diet, or, or if he had tried to serve him maybe gluten-free bread, it might taste off, right? Personally, I think that the baker was thrown in prison because he put raisins in the stuffing. But I, we don't know. We don't know for sure. What we can assume, though, is that Pharaoh ate something or drank something and he got sick, and, and since that happened, they're suspicious that somebody made an attempt on his life, and so you throw the officials in jail while an investigation takes place. Well, after they've been there for a little while, one night both of them have dreams. And we read this in verse 6 through 8. When Joseph came in the next day, the next morning, as he was caring for them, he saw that they were dejected. And he said to Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in the master's house, Why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered. And, and then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations, or, so we both had dreams, and there's no one here to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Now I imagine if you're in prison, it's not uncommon to have bad dreams. That's probably something that goes with the territory. But, but these weren't just bad dreams, these were meaningful dreams that these guys had. And it's always been believed, from, from back then, even up until present day time, it's believed that, that God communicates through dreams. It's one of the common beliefs that has existed throughout time. Now, in Egypt at this particular time, they took this to a science, though. They had these places called houses of life, where they would actually perform, essentially, empirical research into dreams, 
where if you had a meaningful dream, they would have somebody who would record the events of the dream, and then they would monitor your life for a while thereafter and try to find connections. And this went into what was referred to as a dream book. And the dream book and the school, the house of life, was a place where they would train people to interpret messages from God. Because if God's speaking, we got to figure out what it means. It's very, very important. And so these trained individuals would lose some logic, and, and then they would lose, use some uh, kind of symbolism, and they would use this book as a decipher key to figure out what the message of the God is. Now, these officials are desperate to know the meaning of their dreams, the, the, the baker and the chief cupbearer. They want to know the meaning of their dreams because they're thinking, well, maybe God's revealing to me the outcome of the investigation. Maybe I'm going to know what my future holds for me, but there's no one here to interpret it. So Joseph, who is a fellow dreamer, if you remember back in chapter 37, he notices one morning that they're discouraged. He's concerned. He wants to help. And so being a good, faithful God follower, he presents himself as an agent of the one true God, of pointing them to God, the one, the only one, who knows the future and therefore can interpret their dreams. So the cupbearer takes Joseph up on this offer, figuring, I got nothing to lose. And he tells Joseph his dream, beginning in verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed. And its blossoms turned to clusters of these ripened grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and then I put the cup into his hand. This is what the dream means, Joseph said. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to when you were his cupbearer. But when this all goes well for you, remember me and show me kindness now. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcefully carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Joseph delivers good news. He gives good news to the cupbearer. He says, your name is about to be cleared of the investigation, and soon you'll be out of here. Pharaoh will lift up your head, he says. It's a saying that means he's going to grant you favor. If you can imagine sort of a, a contrite subject who comes into the presence of a king and bows low and lowers his head. And then the monarch says, no, no, lift your head. And he can look the monarch fully in the face. This idea of he's going to lift your head so that you can look at him again and, and be considered innocent and free of charge. Well, upon hearing this, obviously the cupbearer is thrilled. And he's excited. He's probably high-fiving Joseph after he hears all this. And Joe figures, this is a reasonable time to ask for a favor because you kind of owe me one here now. And so he says to him, essentially, when all of this comes true, that will be evidence to you that I'm innocent as I say I am because clearly God is with me. And if I wasn't innocent, God wouldn't be with me. But since you'll know that I'm innocent and you'll know that God is with me, when you're back in the presence of the king, make sure you put in a good word for me. Get me out of this pit that I'm in. This is kind of the first sign. If you notice that, so we've gone through three full chapters of the story of Joseph here now. Have you noticed that verse 15 is the first time you see any sense of frustration, any sense of discouragement that Joe shows through this? It's there. It's present. He's discouraged, but he's not allowing it to define his life. And I think at this particular moment, 
He sees opportunity for hope and maybe the start of some redemption where things have been going down. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's going to turn. Maybe this is the chance. Maybe this is what God's going to do. So he asks. Well, while this is taking place, the baker's just a short distance away, and, and the baker thinks to himself, that's my turn. I need some of my good news now. And so in verse 16, when the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream, and, and on my head was three baskets of bread, and, and the top basket was filled with all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head. He'll pale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat your flesh. Huh. Now a different direction. I imagine after he gave the interpretation, they, they, they probably just silently stood there and looked at each other for a few moments. That probably wasn't quite what he was expecting. I imagine the baker looked at Joseph and said, so the king's not going to lift up my head? Well, more off than up, right? Joe probably said to him. Well, I kind of wonder if, if in this moment Joseph contemplated when he heard the dream and then he knew the interpretation. I, I kind of wonder if Joseph thought about saying, oh, that's, that's some hard news. You know what, Baker? Let me sleep on it. Come back and ask me in four days. And I'll, I'll let you know how things are going to work out. He doesn't. He, he decides to, to tell him the truth. Which sometimes that's the right and the caring thing to do is to share the truth with people, even if it's hard truth. So sometimes that's the right caring thing to do, even if it's hard. A couple of years back, this friend of mine came to me and said that he had a New Year's resolution. That, uh, that he thought he was going to do a favor to, to his good friends, not just to anybody in general, but, but to good friends. He was going to do them a favor and he was going to tell them hard truths. Like right, right in the moment. Think, things like if they have like food in their teeth. He was just going to stop them in conversation and be like, you got a little, little something. If they had something in their nose. If, if their fly was down. Or he said, even if, even if they've got kind of B.O. I'm just going to, I'm going to do the hard thing as a friend and tell them. And so my first thought was, well, that's, that's very brave and dangerous. My second thought is, why are you telling me? Like, <laughs> Do I have something that you're kind of warming me up for something here that you want to tell me? But you see, truth is truth even when it's hard truth. Just a little caveat to that. Just make sure if you step into that world that you do so in love. That, that you do so with words of love, with motivations, with actions. Preferably in the context of a relationship where you have permission to share hard truth. Not just randomly walking down the street shooting out hard truth to everybody we meet, but to make sure we do that in the context of love where we have permission. That's what we see here, right? Like, like the baker invited Joseph in to share truth with him. It wasn't what he expected. But the baker asked him to share with him this truth. And so, so Joseph did. And in this case, it actually was a hard truth as an act of love because if you think about it, it gave the baker time to prepare for what was coming next in just a couple of days. You know, there may have been some personal things in, in the baker's life that he had to get organized and straightened out. There may have been some spiritual things where the baker was distant from the one true God, and now Joseph had a chance to share the one true God with him. It was the caring, loving thing to do when you have three days to go. Well, there's the interpretations. And, and sure enough, just as God revealed through Joseph to these men, the, the verdicts are delivered three days later. And we finish the story in verse 20. 
Where it says, now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all of his officials. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of all of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to him in his interpretation. Then the chief cupbearer reminded himself, oh wait, king, there's this guy named Joseph. No. Verse 23. Then the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He just forgot about him altogether. As part of the birthday, birthday festivities, the king lifts up the heads of these two imprisoned officials. The cupbearer, his body is released from prison. He returns to pour, sample, and give the king his drink. The baker, his body is released from his head. And sadly, he's executed, and he's put on public display for all the people and the birds, just as it was said. Now, we're not told why this happened. We, we can make some inferences. It's assumed that the investigation came to an end, and there was some sort of wrongdoing that took place on behalf of the baker. It's, some commentators believe that even the dream itself suggests this. We're having three baskets piled upon one person's head as a rather precarious situation that he found himself in, and the weight of the precariousness was upon his head, which is a, a symbol of, of imposing doom, impending doom upon him. And so there is some symbolic evidence that's thought maybe this is an indication that he was negligent in his duties in some fashion. And so the lesson from Genesis chapter 40 is this. If you're a cook, don't put raisins in the stuffing. Right? That's, isn't that what we get from that? Like just, just stick to the standard recipes. No, yeah, that's truth, but that's not the truth of, of this particular passage. So what we learn from this passage is what Joseph demonstrates. He demonstrates for us that even when we have every reason to be discouraged, we do not have to allow it to dominate our lives. Now, it's never easy when people let us down. And Joseph experiences that yet again. In this case, when the cupbearer lets him down. And, and talk about letting him down. This means another two years in prison for him. Because he was forgotten. Talk about discouragement. Here he is. Joseph, in his late 20s, in the prime of his life, in the prime of his ability, and he has no idea when he's going to be released, if he's even ever going to be released. Now, we can read ahead, and we can find out how the story goes, and we can say, Joe, it's going to be okay. Just hang in there, kitty. It's like the poster hanging on the wall in his jail cell, maybe. He doesn't know the end. He doesn't know how it's going to end. Yet he still remains faithful to God. That's how he handles it. How, how would you handle that situation? If you were in Joe's shoes, how would you handle all of the people and events that just keep coming at you? How do you handle discouragement in your own life? And it can show up in a variety of ways. Like I'm not telling any secrets here that it shows up in the world all around us. You know, those of us who have kids, we're discouraged when we're like, are we going to school or aren't we going to school? The teachers in the classroom, it's discouraging. Business owners, are we opening or aren't we opening? It's frustrating and it can be discouraging. In our relationships with, with our spouses or our kids, and there's just constant tension and arguing, is it ever going to end? It's discouraging. 
We go to work and we find out we've lost a contract to a competitor. It just takes the air out of your tires. You come home and there's surprise bills or the car breaks down at the worst possible time and it just takes the wind out of your sails. See, when people and events let us down, it's very discouraging. And we have to be cautious of that feeling, though, because that feeling can very quickly lead us to feel like God is letting us down. And that is one of the greatest weapons that the enemy has against us. It's discouragement. If people let me down, if events let me down, then God's letting me down. And all of a sudden, it leads to questions. It leads to doubts. It leads to withdrawing. It leads to checking out. Because here's the thing about the enemy's tactics. He does not have to get you to do anything to win. He simply needs to keep you from doing things, and he wins. And if he discourages you and gets you to check out of the game, it's victory. You see, Joe had every reason to be discouraged, every reason to be bitter, to check out, to lose his faith. But if we look at the way that he responded, in spite of all that, I believe that it provides us a few keys of encouragement for how we can avoid living lives of discouragement. So I want to share three of these keys with you very briefly now. Key number one, when you begin to feel discouragement, don't give up and keep doing your job. I heard the story of a mom who went down into her son's room one Sunday morning and woke him up and said, honey, get up. You have to go to church. The son rolled over and said, I'm not going. Maybe some of the moms have have been there. He said, I'm not going. No one likes me there. They're always mean to me. And quite honestly, I don't like them very much either. To which the mom, a good mom, said, get up, get ready, you're going. And then she added, after all, you're the pastor. You have to go. So, so, see, Joe, Joe had every reason to just lay in bed and curl up in a ball, to just stop and quit. Live out a sentence in bitterness. That's not what he did, though. He pressed on. And in spite of all the difficulties he had with people and with the events in the world around him, he kept doing the job that God placed before him. He kept walking the path that God placed before him. 1 Peter 2.20 says this, If you are treated badly for good behavior and continue in spite of it to be a good servant, that's what counts with God. Now, if you know the end of Joseph's story, imagine how different it would be if he didn't keep doing his job. If he had checked out and if he had lost his face, how different would that story be if discouragement had defined his life from all of these things? See, next week we're going to find out how it goes. But if you even know the story ahead of next week, how many lives would have been lost? How many relationships would have been unrepaired? How different would the story of God's people and God's redemption of his people be if Joseph had checked out? Now, however you define the word job, whether you you see your job as as being a student, a parent, a manager, a teacher, a mentor, whatever definition you attach to that word job, whatever God-given role you have, be resilient in discouragement. How? Knowing that God and other people are counting upon you. Knowing that this is just one chapter in a much bigger story that God's writing. 
and keep doing the job that God has called you to. Confident that he is with you and he will help you find the strength and the ability to put one foot in front of the other and keep walking. Key number one, don't give up. Keep doing your job. Key number two, when you feel discouragement knocking on the door, find opportunities to encourage others. See, in jail, Joseph spent many, many years there serving other people. But he didn't just do so. I don't think he did so out of a sense of duty. How do we know that? Because while he's going about his regular duties, serving meals or whatever it may be to the prisoners, when he sees a few prisoners who are downcast, when they're they're in despair, he moves towards them. He cares about them. He, He wants to help them. If he was simply doing his, his prison duty, prison uh, job out of a sense of duty, it wouldn't have gone that way. It would have been more along the lines of knocking on the door, dropping the food on the floor. When he sees that you're down, simply saying, suck it up, princess, life's hard, get used to it. Something you might find on like a demotivational poster. It was just a sense of duty. That's not what he did. He moved towards them. He cared. He wanted to see if he could help. See, all of us will experience trauma and suffering in our lives. And sometimes our expectation is that God will just remove that situation. He'll, he'll remove it and give us temporary relief. But that's not quite how Scripture reads. See, we read a couple of weeks back on the section on adversity where it says, Jesus promised that in this world we will have trouble. But also we read in, in the writings of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, It says this, it says, but in the midst of all the troubles, that that God is our merciful Father who comforts us in all of our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort others with the same comfort he has given to us. See, it is amazing the power of serving others. It's amazing the power that that can have upon a person's life. When you find God's comfort in your life and then you learn that it's actually repeatable, into other people's lives. And we know this to be true, because think about it. After all, who has more empathy and who has more understanding than somebody who has shared the very same crisis or the very same loss that you are going through? You know, this is why I love programs like, uh, like Grief Share. Maybe you've heard of the program Grief Share before. It's, it's a care group that brings together those who have lost loved ones. Where, where a spouse, a child, a parent, a brother, sister, a friend has, has died and a person is going through that journey of a season of grief and it brings people together and there's incredible empathy. There's an incredible sense of understanding because from the leaders right down to all the attendees, they're coming together in this shared understanding of pain. And in that context, they have the ability to walk through this journey, this season of grief together, and find the comfort of God that he gives to them individually, but they can also then give to one another as they successfully navigate a season of grief. Grief share, it's a beautiful program. And and if he sounds like that, that, that describes maybe a season that you find yourself in or somebody you know, in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to be launching a grief share program for people to come and walk through the season of grief together. Here's the thing, when you're in the middle of trauma, in the middle of a crisis, that's a time to be served. That's a time when people need to come around you to serve you. But there then comes a time, once we've experienced the comfort of God and the comfort of others, 
where if we're not going to be ruled by discouragement, we soon need to find opportunities to serve and encourage others in the same way that we have found encouragement and comfort ourselves. And when we do that, it has this power to reignite passion. It has this ability to reignite hope that is based upon God rather than the circumstances that exist around us. So the key number one is that when you feel discouragement coming, don't give up, keep doing your job. Key number two, when you feel discouragement knocking on the door, find opportunities to encourage and serve others. Key number three, when you're feeling discouraged, don't lose faith. Don't lose faith. Keep trusting in God. See, Joe had been put in prison for about 10 years at this time. 10 years. He'd been in prison. 10 years is a long time to do anything. And he's still working. He's still serving. He's still caring. He's still pointing people to God. On the surface, people may have thought he was working for Potiphar or working for Egypt or or working for the warden. But I think the way that he was able to do this for 10 years and going strong, because he knew he wasn't working for them, he wasn't serving them directly, he was serving God. There's a powerful distinction between those two things. It may look the same in the world around us, but there's a powerful distinction that takes place. Because when we have that understanding, we begin to see that life exists on, very, on two very separate levels. We see on the external. That's where sometimes people and events will fail us. On the external is, is when we feel discouragement start to rise and, and it threatens to make us lose hope and to lose faith. That's the one level. But on the other level is the internal, where we live our life with God, where we focus upon him, where we do the things as we invest in the relationship, the internal relationship we have with God. And when we do that, we find that day by day, truth by truth, it grows. And it strengthens, and the roots get deeper, and we can stand stronger, more resilient. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, while externally our bodies are dying, internally our spirits are being renewed every single day. So, in light of that, we fix our eyes upon not what is seen, but upon what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You feeling discouraged at all today? Anything that's been been coming at you the last few weeks? People or events that are failing you? Is it leading you to feel discouraged? If you say yes to that question, I want to encourage you to stay anchored in Christ, who is faithfully providing you with comfort, opportunities for strength, and wants to give you hope. Keep doing your job. Keep looking for opportunities to serve and encourage others. And keep trusting in him. As I studied these three keys this past week, I couldn't help but, but kind of reflect myself upon some of the own seasons of life I've gone through that were very discouraging. And, and then asking myself the question, well, how, how did I react in the middle of that? You know, there, there's many examples that come to mind, but there's definitely one that just stands head and shoulders above all the others. 
And in the midst of that moment of discouragement, I didn't know these three keys. I, I didn't know this then, that these are the keys to overcoming discouragement at that time. But in hindsight, by the grace of God, I can now see that that's actually how I was able to overcome what amounts to the greatest season of discouragement that almost took me out of the game. And I just want to share that story with you before we close today. As some of you are aware, prior to coming to West Meadows, I, I served in another church that went through some hard times. And those hard times actually led to a, a very ugly split in the church. Things like this, if you've ever heard stories, have been through it, you know they aren't quick, and they're not clean, and they're not pretty. It was a season about 18 months long where there was ridiculous, ongoing division and fighting and bringing out some of the worst in people that... I had ever seen, especially in the context of a church. In the midst of all that, as a pastor, I, I felt I had a responsibility. I had a role to kind of hold things together, to just keep holding on, just hold things together. We'll get through this. And that was fine for a while and, until it turned on me. And I remember, I remember the moment, the meeting, the, the, the sentence even, when the final thread was snipped. I, I remember the feeling of hope dying inside of me. I was done. I, it was over. And I don't just mean I was done working as a pastor of that church. I was done being a pastor. Finished. Dean and I went away with friends for a couple of days, and he owned a framing company, and I had arranged that we go back. Sunday morning, I'm going to stand in front of the congregation. I'm going to resign. Monday morning, I'm going to go frame houses. Done. Finished. And that Sunday came, and I stood in front of the congregation with a microphone in hand and permission from Nadine to resign, and full intention to do so as I walked up the stairs. But when I stood there, I couldn't say the words. And so I mumbled, I don't even know what I said. I mumbled something else to this day because I had to say something. And I walked down. I remember Nadine giving me the look of, of why are you still employed? Because that, that was the plan. We're done, right? And I didn't know why I couldn't do it. But the next day I found out. Because the next day the lead pastor and half of the board resigned and the split happened. And in the midst of that, in the next couple of days that happened, the remnants of the board and the remnants of the staff came together and they said, Mark, we need you to lead us. And I said, you need me to what? You have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea how dead I am inside. And you want me to lead you. Key number one, God gave me the courage to keep doing my job. The sense that the story was not over. So I kept doing my job. It wasn't easy. You know, as, as the acting lead of the church at that time, I became the focal point of all of the remnant's anger and questions and people looking for answers and hope. Long was the list of emails and phone calls I received. Long was a list of people lined up outside my door Sunday morning before service and after service wanting to come in and tell me how angry they were, tell me that they were finished and they were leaving the church and wanting me to give them answers. And so just one after the other, I would sit there and listen to these painful stories and receive it. And I would pray for them and wish them a blessing and that they would find a place where they could be fulfilled. Just one after the other. And then after I'd have those meetings, I would get up on the platform. I would do the welcome. It was so good to see you all gathered in the house of the Lord today. We have a chance to worship him together. I would say a short prayer. 
I would walk off the platform and drop my microphone in the front pew. I'd go back to my office and lay on my couch and cry. And then I would get back up, wipe off my tears, and I would preach. I would preach, and then I would go home and have a long nap after all that, week after week. But I didn't do it out of a sense of duty. I did it because when I stood up on the platform, as hard as it was, I saw a congregation. When I drove to work, I saw a community. When I walked into the office, I, I saw a staff who, who were just lost, innocent victims of all this. They needed someone to bring comfort to them. So even though I was battling discouragement like never before, key number two, I saw so many people who needed to be served and who needed to be encouraged. But it wasn't just one-sided. You see, there, there were people whom God brought alongside me too. As we read in the verse earlier, we have a merciful God who comforts us in the midst of all of our troubles. And sometimes through, through the reading of the word of God and through times of prayer, I, just, I would feel refreshed. Other times through a passing comment of somebody in, a, in the foyer, in the restaurant, a phone call, an email, I'd be encouraged. People were there to encourage me and to invest time in me. One in particular was a guy by the name of Michael Harvey who, uh, who became an incredible mentor in my life right before and absolutely during and, and after this time. He is an international church consultant who I came across, a story for another day, uh, lives in Manchester, England, and travels the world doing church consulting. He and I crossed paths, and he offered to meet with me and coach me free of charge whenever I needed. And so we write regularly on Skype, and we have to work out the time shift because he's in Manchester and I'm over here. And, and, and so we would talk over Skype. And he'd coach me, and he'd encourage me. And this one time in particular, I remember when it was like at its absolute worst, I had Michael on the, on the screen. I'm like, Michael, you won't believe what they're doing. You won't believe how mean they are. You won't believe how bad it is. I don't know if I can keep this up. I, I went on for about a half hour just tell him all of these things, and he smiled and listened and nodded, and then when I stopped, he took a breath and he leaned towards the screen on, my, on the camera, and he said, Mark, isn't it glorious? What? Were you listening to me? Isn't it glorious, Mark? And I had lost sight of it then, but God used him to help me see key number three. We need to keep trusting in God. Not in the situations around us. We need to keep trusting in God. Because while the external was in chaos and fading away, the internal life of Christ was growing day by day. Essentially what he was saying to me is that, Mark, you are gaining. He says, I've traveled this world and talked to hundreds upon hundreds of pastors and conference leaders who would, he says, you won't believe it, but they would love to, to trade spots with you. Because in 10 years of ministry, they have not had the experiences of what you're going through in the last six months. And so, considering that, Mark, isn't it glorious that God has seen fit to prepare you for the ministry he has planned for you in the days ahead? And he has seen fit that you need a crash course. Isn't it glorious that he's not done with you? That he needs to prepare you for the amazing things that are ahead of you? And he pointed me back to God. Still felt discouraged. But I can say from that point on, I no longer lived discouraged. I don't know if you've been discouraged by people around you or by events, 
if you're sitting in the midst of that now, if you're feeling that pressure and that tension in the days that have led up to this particular service. Maybe you're feeling discouragement welling within you right now. And if that's the case, may I encourage you? May I encourage you to find courage to not live discouraged? A great quote that I love uh, written in a book called The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. And, and he reminds us of this. He says, God whispers, us, whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. And what is God shouting? I am here. Do you believe that? That God shouts to you in your pain, I am here. If you can say, yes, I believe that, may you stay rooted in Christ and seek to help others. To share with him the comfort you yourself have received. If you listen to that and you say, no, I, I have a hard time believing that, Pastor Mark, then I invite you to step out of the shadows of that doubt and that question and allow God and allow us to come alongside and help carry that burden with you. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you can have one today and you can know the freedom, the power of his presence. You can know what it means when it says that he will give you strength for today and a bright hope for a future tomorrow. If that's where you find yourself, I invite you to click on the prayer link online. Or come forward at the end of the service and join me in a word of prayer at the front. Or if you know you need Christ in your life but you still have questions, then come to Alpha tomorrow night and have those questions answered. And find the power of the presence of Christ in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in all the seasons that we go through, that you're with us. We can believe that in our joys you're with us. We can believe in our conscience that you convict and that you're with us. But God, help us to believe and understand and see beyond a shadow of a doubt that in our sorrow you're with us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who brings us strength in the moments of difficulty, who even though he said we would have struggles and have problems, that in him we could have hope. In him we would find strength. In him we would have a bright hope for tomorrow. God, I pray for all of those who are gathered on site or online who are wrestling with hope and discouragement. Lord, be their hope. Be their comfort and their strength. That we would all experience your comfort and therefore go out as ambassadors of your comfort that the world may know the love of Christ. We pray this in your name.